Welcome to the Well Seasoned Librarian Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2. Today we spoke to Zine Nee of the YouTube vlog Zine on the Scene and Zine Eats. Both are very popular video programs who have a large following. Zine on the Scene explores San Francisco, its city, the outer areas of San Francisco Bay Area, as well as Napa County. Zine is an excellent tour guide who examines the food offerings of the city from the sublime to the affordable. Not only does she have excellent tips on where to go and what to see, but for film buffs, she offers a perspective of the film history in and around the Bay Area and sites that you want to see if you love film. Zenith's is her series where she explores the unique food offerings of the Bay Area and the ever-intrepid explorer. She samples these items to give you a preview of what you're going to want to eat or want to avoid in the Bay Area. I've worked with Zine before in library panels talking about food, and it's always a treat to speak with her. I have biographical information on the bio for you to find her YouTube links. And now, onto the podcast. Welcome to the podcast of the Well-Seasoned Librarian. Today I'm talking to Zine from Zine in Real Life, a video, video, video on YouTube. It, um, she is a vlogger and she hosts um, informational videos about food and exploring San Francisco and the wider Bay Area. And also the, the video uh, cast Zine's Epic Eats just launched November 2020 featuring weekly food adventures where she samples and rates popular gastronomy. Outside of production business, Zine Project manages the busy lives of two teenagers and a husband and tries to find time to hike with a dog, Sammy. Now, um, right off the bat, I want to mention something because I, I was going back and I was looking through some of your YouTube videos. So before we get really excited, I had just watched the um, movie uh, What's Up Doc with uh, Barbara Streisand and uh, from like 1971, I think it was. And Francisco cool. is a very big player in that movie. Um, it almost would be considered supporting cast, the city of San Francisco. So I went back and I was, I was looking at your food videos and I had quite forgotten about all the videos that you have about locations in San Francisco that are in. Oh yeah. And I was really getting excited watching them uh, because I mean, they're really good. They're worthy of television. I think I would love to see A&E adopt your videos and put them on A&E because <laughs> they're that good and I was just like really impressed by the detail you put in with um, some of the films um, and you know it's funny because when I go to I don't I don't live in San Francisco I, and I only go there occasionally you know just because I live outside of the Bay Area and, I, and then mostly went there when I worked but when I do go I'm often like hey wait a minute wasn't that in that movie wasn't in that so how what is your experience and like, what prompted you to start doing that and uh, what, do, what are your, some of your big nerd out moments where you're walking by someplace and going, hey, that's in the film, you know? <laughs> you know, I, ever since starting that series, I've done that more and more. So um, what prompted that series was uh, because of COVID. Um, I was limited in what I could go out and film on location. Um, and be able to uh, put together a good video based off of you know pre-existing stock footage or, or things that I could find online. And um, the film tourism has always been a pretty um, 
big thing with people. I, I think if you go out and you look on social media, people are very, very into film tourism. So I figure, you know, if people can't actually come and visit San Francisco and see it live, um, let's try doing it through film. I, this is something where, you know, they can relate to it because they've seen the film, they've seen the locations. And if you kind of give them, oh, well, this is where they filmed it. And here are some really cool and fun facts about it. People really, really get into it and they can still continue to experience um, San Francisco and, and our foods here through that type of, of forum. Yeah, I was laughing. I was watching this last weekend with my wife, uh, the movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer with um, <laughs> yes, that's yeah, and Nancy Travis. And I was laughing because I remember a couple of times he's just driving around the city. They do a lot of stock things with him where he's just driving around San Francisco. And yeah. I was laughing going, I know somebody who lives there. <laughs> I know somebody who lives there. And like, I've, I've been by that, that business is now this instead. Yep. I imagine. Yeah, and, and I think it's cool too for people who finally come to San Francisco and they walk around and, and I've, I've actually gotten this comment so many times where they go, oh, you know what, I passed this place and I remember it from your video and, and you know, and, and this now makes sense and, and I can kind of see the connection between these two. So yeah, from that perspective, it's, it's, it's kind of a cool feeling. I think I went on a date in the 80s with a woman and she took me to the cliff house and she's like, and I'm like, what? She's like, <laughs> what do you, what? and she goes, Vertigo, hello. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, oh my God. And I didn't realize, oh my God, that was from Vertigo. And yeah. News, and there's just so many great location places. You just, if you don't, you know, if you're not thinking about it, you're just going to walk right past it. Yeah, well, Vertigo filmed in so many locations throughout San Francisco. Um, Legion of Honor, the Palace yeah. of Fine Arts. Um, it, and I actually am, a, am currently working on uh, one of the episodes, um, which is a collaboration with another YouTuber. So we're actually going to dig deep and do old Hollywood. Um, and the, this next upcoming episode is going to be 100% about Alfred Hitchcock. And I didn't know this before I started doing the video, but Alfred Hitchcock uh, was a huge fan of the Bay Area. And he did three of his films up here. And he actually had a house up here. Uh, he owned a winery in Santa Cruz. I don't know if people know that. Um, I, didn't which know, was, no, I didn't know that. Super cool. And in addition to being a huge foodie, he was also an amateur viticulturist. So he grew his own grapes. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Wente Vineyards. Yeah, oh yeah, I've been by there, yeah. Yep, he sold his grapes to Wente Vineyards. Oh my God, that's crazy. I didn't yeah, and, uh, and after he passed away, uh, his vineyard uh, was purchased by another couple. Um, and actually they, you know, they carried on the, the winery tradition um, and it's, open now for people who want to go and visit and it's just kind of a, a cool way to bring the whole uh wine and um film industries and in the bay area together in one place and um very cool chill place to be and it's great views of the uh, redwood forests in uh, santa cruz oh my god yeah i love that i love that area that's so beautiful out there yes it's gorgeous so i'm gonna go back to um a question I've asked you more than a few times, and I always love when you talk about this. Uh, what made you go into YouTube hosting and becoming a vlogger? How did you decide to do it? I mean, I want to say, like, if people who are listening to this have not seen your, um, your, your webcast, I really, really encourage them to because 
I think you have one of the best ones on YouTube. I mean, it's so oh, professionally thank you. done. Everything, you know, you always hit the nail on the head every time. Your, your sound's always 100%. Your visuals are 100% all the time. You always sound like, you know, you're, you've, you've maybe gone to like some kind of school to study elocution <laughs> because you always sound great. And that's, that's not the case okay. with all YouTube bloggers, right? I mean, I don't know how, I have a lot that I really enjoy, but it doesn't always, I mean, they usually look like something that somebody just did. And yours always looked really great, like a studio produced it. So do you- Oh, great, thank you. So how did you get into it? What, what made you decide to go into it? And what made, like, because I look back and from the beginning, you've always had really, you know, great content from the beginning of, of your series onward to now. So what, what made you do this? Yeah, and by the way, I, I think content is super important. But uh, anyways, I, I originally came from technology marketing. I had like a 15 year uh, career there. And I got just to a point where I was kind of tired of the rat race, kind of tired of doing the corporate thing. And I wanted to do a career switch um, into something that um, I could own. It could be, it could be for me. Um, and that would give me some independence and, and flexibility. And I found that um, after doing some research that YouTube was an awesome platform um, that would allow me to host my own content. And just in general, it has pretty low barriers of entry. Like you don't really need a ton of capital and experience to start your own YouTube channel. Like all you need to do is to create an account and you're on right away, right? And, and buying video and audio equipment is not that expensive. Most people have a, a, a camera on their phone and you just need some good sound quality and, and like a lavalier mic is not a, that expensive. It's 20 bucks and you're ready to go. And you're, you're right there. You just spent 20 bucks and you're a YouTuber right there. So, um, so that for me, it was very easy to get on. Um, and then the other part of it too, is that I think YouTube um, really allows you to be set up for success in that it's already got a ready-made audience, which is huge. Um, and it, has a built-in uh, monetization engine right there. So um, you can very easily make it into a sustainable business. What was your, have you always been kind of a, a gourmet or a gourmand or have you always loved food? I mean, were you a kid that was like really into food or did you, were you like some people getting into it more later in life as an adult? Oh gosh. Well, so my mom uh, was a fantastic cook, um, and actually she majored in home economics in college. Nice. And so that, that should give you some indication of my age was back then when home economics was a honest-to-goodness major. And, and in some ways, I wish they would bring it back because I think we're missing out on a, on a whole area there. Well, so, I, remember, um, I remember it in high school. And in, yeah. Yeah. That was, a, that was a thing. A lot of, I've known people that majored in that. So. Oh, yeah, that's what my mom did. She majored in home economics. So um, I actually grew up eating really, really well and exposed oh. to a pretty diverse palate. But I would have to say that I didn't grow up a foodie, even though I was exposed to a lot of food experiences. Um, I was an exceptionally picky eater and child. <laughs> and I don't know, for some reason, um, certain tastes and textures when I was young just really put me off. And so um, I wouldn't say that I had a, uh, an enlightened palate when I was younger. Um, it, it probably was something that developed more as an adult. Um, and I would say in college, I began to 
go out and eat more um, and sort of appreciated food through just that sort of exploration of the restaurants and the dining experiences around me. So I, I appreciate you saying that because now I have some hope for my children <laughs> who are very picky and I'm hoping they will eventually kind of evolve into foodies and stuff as they get older because, you know, I, I just, you can't live your life eating macaroni and cheese. All no, you cannot. <laughs> Uh, and that, by the way, is supposedly a very popular uh, diet plan for most youngsters. Like, I, I believe, I don't know if you've heard this term, the white diet. Yeah, yeah. Some kids that all that only eat things that are the color white, like rice, I pasta. Think, <laughs> like, the orny diet. Like, yeah. had, uh, macaroni and cheese and goldfish. I think those are the There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, I often want to experiment and try different things. And my wife has, she's, she's very patient with me and she, she's very like, cook whatever you want. But like, I was putting a couple of tongues in the, uh, the basket. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm going to make language. She's like, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, come on. You won't, it won't look like this when I'm done. And she's like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> you just got to sneak it in. Don't tell them that you're doing it. Just sneak it in. Yeah. Make it a surprise. When I, she's out and about, I'll be like, she'll come home and be like, oh, we're having tacos tonight. It's uh, <laughs> something, just try it, you'll like it. Mystery meat. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, people have a conception of the food, the food scene in San Francisco. And one of the things that really irritates me is that I think a lot of people come to San Francisco or the Bay Area in general, and they go right to Fisherman's Wharf Yes. The bread bowl with the uh, ubiquitous uh, clam chowder yep. and, uh, you know, the sourdough bread, and then they leave. And if maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll have some seafood, maybe some oysters, you know, but usually they just leave and go, come and go. And if they go to Chinatown, they'll just go to whatever is the most popular thing. Yeah, that'll be it. And yep. it's, it's frustrating because we, we have a city, as you know, I mean, more than anybody, it's got such a diverse culture and there's so many different types of things there. So I think, what do you think that some of the things, like if you want to recommend to people coming to the city as you do in your vlog, like what do you like want to like tell people, hey, go get away from the mainstream and go to here. What, what would you recommend to people? Yeah, so I don't discourage people from doing the clam chowder or the dim sum thing because it's a, it's a, it's a pretty essential part of the San Francisco experience, especially if you don't come to San Francisco very often. Um, and this is sort of a once or a twice in a lifetime thing for you. Um, definitely go experience it, but expand your palate um, and go beyond sort of, um, not to knock them, but go beyond uh, Boudin's or go beyond, you know, um, whatever is the dim sum place that you've been recommended to go to. Um, go and actually find the, 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 the real authentic um, versions of those things. And actually, um, you know, when I did food videos for travelers, those were the top two videos that I produced. Where can you find clam chowder and where can you find Chinese food that is authentic and is like the, a better experience for you if you're coming to um, San Francisco. So, um, personally, um, I actually have two recommendations for clam chowder if you wanna come uh, go to a place called Blue Mermaid, uh, which is also in Fisherman's Wharf, but they do such fantastic um, from scratch chowders and it's not a bad deal. 
Uh, they do like three chowders. You've got a red chowder, your traditional uh, white chowder, and then they do kind of a special uh, crab and corn clam chowder that is that is more like San Francisco um, for like a great price. Like I think the sampler is 12 bucks for three, um, which is so much better than the, I think it's like eight or nine dollars that you get at uh, Boudin, right? Um, or like go to go to uh, Hog Island Oyster in the Ferry Building. Yeah. And Hog Island Oyster is a homegrown uh, Bay Area business. They actually have an oyster farm up in uh, around Tamales Bay. And, you know, personally, I think if you're going to come and, and you have a car and you can get up there, go experience it. It's so fantastic. And you really understand the, the whole Bay Area ethos around agriculture. Um, you know, I would say that that is the one thing about living here in the Bay Area that makes us unique is that we have, we are so blessed to be in an area where we're near uh, sea and surf that we have fantastic, fantastic uh, natural ingredients, right? We, we do our own fish, we have our own oyster farms, we have our own farms uh, just down the street in like Watsonville or out in the East Bay. Um, I mean, we are so blessed to be able to have all of this uh, really great uh, ingredients. Like definitely go out to some farms and like experience what that's like and have food that literally just got harvest, harvested that morning. Um, so for like clam chowder, that's what I would say. Or like Chinatown, uh, people always want to come and have dim sum. And so I recommend to them some like very unique dim sum experiences. Like one thing that is very uh, unique to San Francisco is that we have uh, counter services for dim sum, which I have not really seen any place other than in New York. And these are areas where you can go in, you get like super cheap, but very, very fresh dim sum. Um, and it's this whole experience of they don't have seating there. It's not like with the little carts that they push around. Uh, you go to a counter, they're very brusque. So you know, you're gonna have to excuse them for that. You yeah. order your dim sum, you pay your, you know, $2 per order or whatever it is. And then you go to a, uh, a park or something and you, you kind of squat there and you, you, you eat your dim sum. Um, or you go all the way out to, um, Sunset District, which most people never head out to, but but which is actually a second chance the the uh, the sunset. So that's a great place to go experience um, kind of the very local feel of uh, Chinese experience in San Francisco. Um, outside of that, I would also say people must must experience two other things. Burritos, specifically the Mission Burrito, was actually founded in San Francisco. And I think most people forget that. Um, and actually Mission Burritos right now are probably the most predominant form of burritos uh, around the United States. And most people don't actually put those two together. Um, and if you go to the Mission District, there are so many fantastic uh, places where you can go and get uh, a Mission Burrito. Um, and then the second thing I would totally recommend is um, go to a restaurant that does farm to table style cuisine because that is something that we are just known for um you know again we are close to so many farms close to so many uh, ranches and places that like raise um, um livestock that like to experience the freshness of that type of uh cuisine is just a must do here in san francisco the burrito thing I always laugh because when I moved here I say around 90 I don't think that the mission burrito had taken hold in the United States like it had here and I remember getting a burrito and amazed first I was 
shocked at the price of it because usually I could get a burrito back then for about three bucks, you know, and it was like eight or nine. And I was like, all right. And so I paid and I got this burrito that was the size of a small sleeping bag. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is this? And it had rice in it and all of a sudden I'm like, rice in it? Yes. Oh, what? And it was big. Yes. But now it's the norm, right? I think even in San Diego where I'm from, they didn't do that, but now they do just because it took off, you know? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, Dean, I'm sorry. I, I want to ask you, I know this is a hard question, and, and I wanted to preface it with another question first. Because you're so well known, um, you know, you, you know the city and you know the food here. I, I'm, I'm willing to guess you probably get about four or five texts per night saying, hey, can you recommend this? Can you recommend that? Are you going <laughs> to recommend things? Not per night. <laughs> but I know, but, uh, you know, and that's that's part of what I do and what I enjoy doing is I, I and the great thing about doing YouTube and social media, and I'm also on Instagram for um, those who are interested in following me, um, is to be able to connect personally with like-minded individuals. And I don't mind. I love when people contact me and go, hey, you know, um, I'm going to be visiting San Francisco. Can you recommend places to eat or places to see? Um, and always happy to chat with people about that. What are, what are some of your top recommendations for San Francisco? Like if you, if people were to, you know, come to the city and they wanted to go somewhere nice that they could really be memorable, but we, we, I know this is a hard question, but like just a few places you want to shout out to that you can think of. Yeah. So, um, if you can afford it, <laughs> I think the two restaurants that are most um, reflective of San Francisco have got to be French Laundry and Alice's, Alice Waters, Chez Panisse, and Berkeley. So for just that, you know, those are two things where if you think about San Francisco and you think about fine dining, you know, those are the places that you want to be. They're reflective of that whole uh, slow foods movement the whole farm to table move. So I would say that um, what I would recommend is, you know, if you want that same experience, um, there are definitely restaurants here in San Francisco and, and there's no restaurant that you, you will find that isn't, you know, where the standards aren't fantastic. Just being in this area um, with the accessibility to those farmers markets. Um, I would say State Bird Provision is a really, really good place to go to get that same experience, but at like a fraction of the cost. And um, that the, that restaurant can also be a little bit busy at times um, because, again, it's just so popular. The food is so good there and it's so inexpensive uh, that they typically do have quite a bit of a, a wait. What about, um, um, like you recommended some wine? So yeah, what I would recommend is up there. Um, so first, I would say that the wine region is huge. So, uh, you know, you've got Sonoma, you've got Napa, and usually you're going to one or the other. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to mix, them two, mix the two together. I would say that if you're going up to Napa, um, I would check out Oxbow uh, Public Market. So uh, that is a really good place where you're going to get some artisanal foods that are, um, and actually, if you're not familiar with, a, with public markets, they're essentially, it's like a big marketplace area where you've got a bunch of smaller restaurants inside. 
So it's a good place to go to find like artisanal foods. You've got model bakery in there. You've got hog Island oyster in there. Um, there's so many like great restaurants where you can do a little bit of everything and kind of experience the, the bounty of the Bay area all in one place. Um, I think if you're going to Sonoma, I would totally recommend that you go to Guerneville. So uh, Guerneville is a very tiny, tiny city uh, up on the Sonoma coast. And um, I'm gonna, so um, there's a, an amazing uh, chef there called Krissa Lutke. And she and her partner retired to Guerneville um, some years, it might've been a decade ago. And she opened up a hotel there called Boone Hotel plus Spa. And it was absolutely like phenomenal. It took off, it was a huge success. And she then uh, over the last several years has gone and invested quite a bit in Guerneville itself. And so if you go to downtown Guerneville, which looks like literally middle America. It looks like very unassuming, like one of those places in middle America where literally you pass by it um, driving on the freeway. But like if you actually stop and get out, she has made this into kind of a really unknown food mecca. So she opened up a restaurant there called um, uh, Boone uh, Eat Plus Drink, I believe. Uh, and uh, She's also got a couple of other uh, restaurant properties there. Uh, there's a, uh, I think it's called Big Bottom Market, uh, which does fantastic, fantastic breakfast. So they, they do biscuits there and they do all sorts of like fancy biscuits with uh, different toppings. Um, and then she's, she's actually lured a bunch of different other restaurateurs. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you were doing Epic Eats, you have had a lot of different foods across the Bay Area, and you've had some wonderful experiences and some probably not so wonderful experiences. Can you tell me about um, some of your least memorable experiences that you've had? Um, olive oil and vinegar shakes. So they make milkshakes with olive oil and then milkshakes with vinegar in them. <laughs> and I was like, what a cool food adventure. So uh, I went up there to try it out. And uh, it's, a, it's a place called Olive Pit. So I'll give them a shout out. Um, and they, they uh, Corning is best known for olives. So they can olives there. They also produce olive oil. So it was just kind of natural for them to come up with this concept of doing a milkshake with olive oil and with vinegar in it. So I go in and they have this huge menu of maybe like 30 different types of shakes. Uh, and so there's like 15 of them are different flavored olive oil shakes and 15 of them are different um, uh, vin balsamic vinegar, like with infused flavors type shakes. And the olive oil was actually okay. Uh, so I ordered one of each. I ordered like, a, it was like a blood orange olive oil and then like a fig balsamic vinegar shake was what I ordered. 
the olive oil was okay. Didn't taste extraordinary, but didn't taste bad either. It just kind of tasted like a, a orange Julius uh, milkshake was what it tasted like. But um, I have to say, I was not awesomely thrilled <laughs> with the vinegar one. And, uh, you know, I think the concept is fantastic. And actually later I came back and I came up with my own recipe for it, which I love to this day. I think unfortunately it was the execution because vinegar is one of those things where you have to have a super light touch. And I think the person making it unfortunately used like way too much vinegar. So it was just this very overpowering um, sense of vinegar when you, when you tasted the shake. So um, yes, <laughs> that was probably my, my worst food experience so far out of this series. Well, I mean, it's nice because I mean, you're always really, I've never seen you be nasty about it. You've always been really nice about the stuff and you're always very gracious, but like, I would, I'd be, I don't know, like, Throw it over my shoulder. I don't know if I'd be happy with that. I think, I think conceptual. I think conceptually, also the idea of like balsamic vinegar and a milkshake just does not appeal to people. So, I would have to say also that video was one of the ones where I had the most like negative visceral feedback from from uh, from viewers. So, <laughs> I it's funny you mentioned something earlier, and like I was going to circle back to it because. San Francisco or the Bay Area in general is one of those places where if you walk down a lot of main streets or if you're in areas of the cities, you, you will pop, pop, pop by places that like just sell one thing or, or specialize in one thing. Like I know that in uh, Russian Hill, the Little Italy, there's like a place that just sells focaccia. That's it. Yes. <laughs> there's yes, places that sell, yeah. yeah. There's places that sell just chocolates. And there's a place I think in uh, Chinatown you, you can get you can get congee there, but you really probably I don't know if they're really open later. You know, you'd go there in the morning and get congee. That'd be about it. So like I think there's a lot of places like or I know a place that has pizza. Like a, you can get a slice, but then there's yes. places in North Beach like that. You can get a slice, but they have nothing else. That's you get a slice or nothing. You know, so it's not like other cities where or other places where everything's in a shopping market or a Safeway. You know, everybody's got little tiny places that are open for a few hours, maybe till three. Yes, exactly. Close and that's it, you know. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and I would say that it, it's, you know, they talk about like um, this thing called third wave coffee, which is, um, it, it's sort of becoming a little bit of an industry term where I think, um, and, and a little bit of history, I read about that it's a little bit associated with millennials. Like there's sort of this, anti-establishment reaction where a lot of millennials as they've sort of aged into their 30s um, are trying to get down to the basics and it's like well what'll make me happy to make me happy i really want to um i don't want to go into corporate america i don't want to do the finance thing i don't want to do the tech thing i want to get back to the earth and i want to uh, craft something and be really really good at it and and sort of make it into this like ultimate symbol of what it is. And so I think that's a little bit of what you're seeing is that, you know, you've got these, um, these people who are, who are really engaged with like beer, for example, right? They want to make the best craft beer or, uh, or croissants, right? They're very obsessed with making like the best croissants ever. So there's a little bit, I think of that to it as well. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so that, does that even go into like, I know that about five years ago, the media had a heyday with talking about avocado toast and 
how these millennials are eating avocado toast. It's so expensive. And does that step into that where like people were making the nice coffee, they had like the, the better coffee, maybe fair trade, and then they would have some avocado toast. And I think people were misinterpreting that. They were just looking at it as being this P.T. Barnum thing and maybe it was something else. Maybe it was more kind of comes from a genuine place. Yeah. Well, I do think it does come from a genuine place. And uh, the avocado toast is a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing in San Francisco. Um, there's some, there is some uh, controversy as to uh, who founded Avocado Toast, San Francisco or Los Angeles. And by the way, we have a lot of these controversies, uh, SF versus LA. Uh, the, the Chinese fortune cookie is another one where both cities claim to have originated. <laughs> <laughs> originated the whole concept, but I don't know. Uh, up here in San Francisco, so I forget the name, there is one place that uh, apparently sold, like came up with the idea and was the first to sell avocado toast. But it does come from a culture where um, people were very obsessed about bread up here mm -hmm. for a very long time. Um, and we have so many great bakeries up here. Uh, but specifically around bread, you've got like Jane the Bakery, you've got the Mill, um, you know, you've got Tartine. There's all these like fantastic bakeries that are so obsessed about making great breads. And I think um, the avocado toast was sort of an offshoot of that, that you have this like perfect loaf. Um, and how do you serve it in your bakery in a way that kind of shows it off? Um, and so, it, you know, the avocado toast is such a simple um, kind of uh, uh, interpretation of, of, of bread and toast. Right? Like how do you just put like the most minimal thing, which is like a fresh avocado with some sea salt on it and right. some olive oil. Right. And then, and that, and that presents the, the toast in the best light. Very good. Now I was going to ask you, are, do you have any connection with people? Do you have any friends that work in the food industry? And has there been any, has there been any sense for you, like how it's going right now? Because we've had, I mean, you've spoken about, how the quarantine has affected you as a vlogger. Like, so how is it, what is your sense of how the uh, food industry has been affected by the quarantine since it started? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so a little bit of history, uh, San Francisco uh, prior to the pandemic was the number one um, region for restaurants in the United States. We actually had the most restaurants per capita out of any city in the US. Um, and like to the, to the extreme, like we were double the number of restaurants than the number two city behind us. So um, that sort of gives you some idea of like how important rest the whole restaurant industry was to San Francisco. Um, I think that, yes, it has actually um, devastated, the, the pandemic has devastated the restaurant industry. Um, you know, and, and to your question, I do have some friends in the industry, like probably, I wouldn't say it's, it's more than anybody else, but just kind of having been around. Yeah, I do, I do have friends who uh, have either opened restaurants or are involved with the uh, restaurant industry in some way. And I, I sort of hear the same thing from all of them. They're all struggling right now. Um, but, you know, I, I will say, and, and just to kind of throw a statistic out there, the restaurant, uh, the National Restaurant Association, um, the restaurant, uh, National Restaurant Association published a statistic that in the U.S., just last year alone, there were about a hundred thousand restaurants that closed, either like temporarily or permanently. 
Um, so that's, that's a huge, huge impact. And I think the, it was like some billions of dollars of lost revenue as a result of all these closures. So yes, it, it, it is pretty widespread. Um, I will say, however, that what I've seen is that the restaurant industry is very resilient. So, um, so in general, yeah, I would say yes. Um, from my friends and people that I know in the industry, this has been an exceptionally hard year on restaurants. Um, and this is kind of an interesting statistic. Uh, the National Restaurant Association, just thousand restaurants across the United States closed, either temporarily or permanently. And here in the Bay Area, it includes like some, some of our like, huge San Francisco institutions closed. Um, Louis Diner, Farallon, the Cliff House Restaurant, Lefty O'Doul's, like these are just some examples of places that have been around for um, decades. And then now they're no longer here. Like these were places that, you know, locals and, and tourists used to come and visit all the time. Um, so it is, it is really sad. And I think it has significantly impacted it. Um, however, I will say that in general, I think the, the restaurant industry is pretty resilient. Um, and I have every confidence that, um, you know, once we hit reopening on June 15th, um, things will start bouncing back. Um, just because food is so necessary and essential to like our lives as humans, like we rely on food, right? So we have to eat. <laughs> and then dining itself is just a, a very important cultural piece of being in a society. Um, like restaurants have been around since like civilization was born. So I don't think that the restaurant industry is going anywhere. I think what we're looking at is just how fast we think that they're going to recover. Um, and I think allowing them to, um, like now that the COVID has subsided around here, um, allowing them to begin reopening again, I think is, is hugely helpful. Um, I've heard from some that the, the takeout was kind of just barely uh, sustaining their like operating costs. Um, and, you know, there's another really famous restaurant in Chinatown called Sam Wo. And Sam Wo had to lay off um, almost all of their staff. And the owner was like sitting there operating the restaurant all by himself. So he was doing the cooking, the bookkeeping, the cleaning, everything was all him, right? So having capacity to seat people inside, I think is going to really help them um, recover some of the costs so that they can become uh, more uh, profitable again. Um, but you know, here's the other thing is, is unbelievably, like this is how resilient uh, restaurants are. Unbelievably, last year, even though we were in the middle of a pandemic and at the height of like restaurant restrictions, there were still so many fantastic restaurants that opened. So we have restaurants like Mama Hoo Hoo, we have Reams, Smish Smash, El Garage, and they are doing like spectacular. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. I, I'm so glad that so many places have been able to like still continue and then open too. Because I mean, I think I've, I've listened to other podcasts where people have talked about, you know, opening and how scary that is. But I think they came in it with the mindset that they're going to have to like adapt to what's going on, where I think with... Some of the older institutions that were, you know, ingrained, maybe open for decades, it had to be really a huge mind shift to kind of try and, you know, adapt to the change, you know, so yes, I, I feel like there's been, I mean, I, my family never used, I mean, maybe if my kids did, but my wife and I never used delivery before, we would always just go out and get stuff. 
And now we started using, I've, I actually have a delivery app on my phone, which I never would have done because I'm, I'm largely a Luddite. So I, I don't <laughs> really use a lot of technology for our apps and stuff like that. And I've, and I've enjoyed getting stuff from some of the local restaurants, which was really, I think, kind of helped open up my, my access to them because I'll see more stuff on the app and I'll go, oh, let's try that. You know, do you think that's changed the food industry at all? Do you think that's made some impact on it? Maybe. Oh, absolutely. Positively? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's really helped them with reach. So uh, one restaurant that I'm pretty familiar with is called China Live, and they opened um, maybe like five or six years ago, um, just kind of on the border of Chinatown. And so they're, if you've heard of Italy in New York, they're sort of like an Italy concept. So it's uh, three or four floors, and they do Chinese food in all sorts of different ways. Um, they have like a shop, a tea house, a, a couple of restaurants in there, uh, like a grocery store type of a thing in there. Um, and so because of this whole uh, delivery concept, they've actually been able to extend their reach um, all the way down into South Bay. So they're no longer serving just San Francisco, but they're actually being able to serve the broader Bay Area. Um, another area where I think technology has really helped enhance the restaurant industry is this new thing called ghost kitchens. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but... Um, yeah, I actually worked by one, weirdly enough. It would not have been possible without of delivery services. So uh, these new ghost kitchen concepts are you know, uh, you have somebody who manages the ghost kitchen. Um, and I think in the past, like restaurants would do their own, but like this is sort of a new thing where you have an actual company that, that hosts these ghost kitchens, but they'll rent out a giant warehouse in some industrial area of San Francisco and they cut up the warehouse into some smaller kitchens and they provide all the equipment in there. And so, at, you know, if you're a, a startup or some sort of a pop-up, this is fantastic for you, right? Because you don't actually need to have that capital investment, which by the way, is the most expensive part of starting up a restaurant. Um, so you, you can go in and you have the freedom to kind of do whatever you need to do. And the other part is there's no front of house. Um, and so, you know, I'll kind of explain for people who don't understand front of house, back of house, like back of house is like your, your kitchen and the front of house is really your service area where your customers will come in, um, sit down, you have to have waiters, you have to have bartenders, hosts, busboys, etc. So there's no front of the house needed because your front of the house are really these delivery apps. So this whole concept is geared on, you know, you come in, you have a, a kitchen already set up for you, and then you also don't have to put in money to hire all these people and, and to support like a, a dining experience up front because everything is delivery. So I think for um, for restaurants, this is really uh, revolutionary for them in that it's never been that simple where you can go and just like try an idea, right? Like, I don't know whether whether my boba idea is going to work. I just want to try it out and see whether it, it you know, it has any demand. Um, because in the past, you, you used to have to have a lot of money um, to like start something. So like you'd have to be really sure of your idea because you don't want to waste somebody's like million dollar investment in your business, right? So nowadays you don't have to do that. But you have, you have these ghost kitchens where you can go in and try out a concept, see if it works, see if, it, you know, 
spend some time in this ghost kitchen um, refining your concept to a point where, okay, maybe then you may want to do sort of a, a real brick and mortar. And then you actually have a business where that type of an investment makes sense. So yeah, I, I do think that technology has been pretty um, important and, and evolutionary for the restaurant business. Very cool. Um, last question. And I want to thank you for doing this with me. I know this has been a lot. Oh, this has been fun. Yeah, I, I, love, I can talk to you all day. Um, <laughs> me too. I love, I love talking to you. And great questions also. And uh, I love talking about food. I, I love this question because I think it always gives me insight. I know it's a hard question, so I'm going to throw it out there. Um, if you could invite 10 people, living or dead, um, to dinner, who would you invite and what would you serve? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I may not have exactly 10 people. That's I'll fine. try. That's fine. So I would say that um, my favorite food to serve at dinner parties are Vietnamese spring rolls. And okay. in, Vietnamese, in, Viet, in Vietnamese, it's called Go Quan. I probably pronounce that incorrectly, but that's what that is. Um, and what I do is I do a version of this where it is make your own. Nice. So the reason why I like it is because one, it's exotic enough that it's kind of a really fun experience for people. They're like, oh my gosh, I've never done this before. And they're kind of learning about a new culture and learning about new foods. Um, and it's, it's a great conversation starter because then you can kind of start talking about, oh, the origins of this and how this was made and, you know, um, get into even some cultural and societal uh, and, and other like pop culture type uh, conversations. Um, so, you know, I think for me, uh, that's fantastic. And it's very experiential, right? You're not just coming in here and eating food. You're actually actively participating in making the food. So, uh, so for me, that's, that's sort of my favorite, uh, party, party trick, if you will. Um, so for me, the dinner guests, uh, there are two, two criteria for me to, for inviting people to my dinners. One, um, first, they have to have stimulating conversations. So the person has to be really, really interesting and be willing to, to participate in uh, discussions. And number two, um, diversity of viewpoints is really important to me. So I would say that the people that I invite should come from kind of a pretty um, varied background. So that said, <laughs> the, the people that I would invite, um, my friend, Henry Nguyen, who uh, lives in Vietnam right now, but uh, the reason why is that he can give us more of a cultural and historical recounting on the dish, you know, so he could kind of talk a little bit about like, you know, food in Vietnam and, and particularly the spring rolls and the history and, and all of that behind it. Um, but also he's just a very interesting person person. Uh, he was a contributor to the Lonely Planet Vietnam Guide, so he has a lot to talk about, like interesting um, perspective in traveling in Vietnam, um, and he's currently an investor there, and he's actually invested in several restaurants, and so uh, he can talk a lot about the industry there. Um, he was the first person to have founded the McDonald's franchise over there, and I think to this day, he's still the only sole franchisee over uh, of McDonald's over in Vietnam. So I think it's, oh, sorry, are you hearing? Uh, it's, it's fine, you're fine. Okay. So he's, uh, um, so he is the, the investor in uh, McDonald's in Vietnam over there. So I think just kind of understanding how the Vietnamese restaurant culture, or 
the whole Vietnamese restaurant industry is, is I think just really interesting. Um, two, I would invite David Sedaris. So for people who don't know David Sedaris, he is a humor writer and author of 12 books. Um, and he's done also numerous essays and plays and he's been on like so many television shows. Um, and he's just got this fantastic dry wit um, and he's so well-traveled. Like he's from the South. So he's got these very non-traditional Southern values, but at the same time, he's also lived in Europe. He's lived in France for many, many years. So he's, I think got this really fantastic um, perspective on Europe and, and, and how Europeans perceive Americans and vice versa. So I think that would be really fun. Um, Michelle Obama, the former first lady, um, she's a proponent of healthy eating for kids. And I think just, she is so well, uh, spoken and she has got such great um, insights um, about politics, about uh, events, current events, things are going on in the world. Um, I, I would love to learn more about her work with exercise and nutrition. So uh, that would that would be number three for me. Number four, Chrissy Teigen, uh, the model, TV personality, social media maven, and she's also a very prolific cookbook author. Um, I think she's just so um, she's a she's a very um, a very forthright person, and that's what I really appreciate about. About her she like she doesn't mince words and I just think her experience like in um, in the whole model in the whole TV I mean just everything is um, it's just wonderful and she's a huge proponent of women's of, of women's experiences and women's rights so um, I you know I'd love to hear more from her um, I love uh, Michael Lewis. I don't know if you know who he is, but he wrote uh, Moneyball, The Big oh, yeah. Short, uh, which were all made into movies. Uh, he actually came from the finance world and then ended up becoming a financial journalist afterward. Um, and I think he just has this really good way of taking financial terms and putting them into layman's um, into kind of like layman's words and and it makes it very accessible for regular people um so i think for for me just kind of understanding his viewpoint on on finance and just where like the economy is going and and discussions around that um totally would invite him um i kind of went back and forth about um I want to include a scientist because I think that is really, really important. Um, so I think there were two that I had on my list. Um, hold on a second. Let me, let me just double check one thing real quick. So for the scientists, I would either want to invite uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, yeah. Um, I would either want to invite Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I don't know if you guys know, he's a very well-known astrophysicist. He has appeared on several TV shows um, and has like these really fantastic um, theories about all sorts of uh, uh, scientific topics. Um, or the other person would be uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who is a, a very well-known uh, microbiologist. Oh yeah, I love so, that. Yeah, I read his. Yeah, and he does fantastic. He, 
he's written a series of really fantastic books um, just about evolution. And so for me, um, those would be between one of those two. Or how about, let's say, because, uh, because I can have 10, both. <laughs> yeah, why not? That'd be great to see them talk to each other. Oh I'm, my gosh, yeah. yeah and just come in with their different perspectives on science, like or their different fields on it and kind of see their, their different takes as a result of that, right? Oh God, I'd love to hear their conversation. I'm, a, I'm an armchair biology nerd. So I- Oh, I, are you really? So am I. Yeah, I love, I love reading. I mean, I, I, I wish I would have gone into it now as a career field because I think I'd really enjoy it. But I'm in my 50s, that's not gonna happen, but you know. <laughs> it's never too late. Yeah, that's right. And 50 is young. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great group so far. I like yeah, it. Yeah, um, and I would want to invite like a, a restaurateur Oh yeah. So um, on my list is also Chef Alan Wong, who is from Hawaii. And unfortunately, another um, casualty of the pandemic, he just closed his restaurant uh, in Hawaii. Um, he actually had a super popular, like next to Roy Yamaguchi, he had one of the top two most uh, famous and popular fine dining restaurants in, uh, in Honolulu. And um, he does these really fantastic fusion Hawaiian cuisines. Um, and I, I was able to dine there when I was visiting Honolulu some years back, um, got to uh, get an autograph, a cookbook for me. Um, I love his recipes. I always cook out of them. So for me, just to be able to have some time with him, to talk to them, find out about Hawaiian cuisine and his his you know, thoughts on, on uh, restaurants and opening a restaurant and being in that industry, I think would be so fantastic. That sounds wonderful. Oh my God, what a good group. Yeah, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, oh, yeah. um, who's the acclaimed Renaissance master, just because he knows everything. Like he's a writer, he's an artist, he's a mathematician, he's a scientist. He came up with so many like inventions um, just to be able to, you know, um, talk to him more about those things, I think would be fantastic. Um, and then like last on my list, uh, I, I, want, um, I want a writer. So uh, I have on there Christopher Paulini, who is the author of the Inheritance Cycle series. It's uh, like a fantasy fiction for uh, teens. And he is one of the youngest, most successful author of science fiction books ever. Uh, I think he published his first book when he was 16. And his first book became like a New York Times bestseller. Nice, I'll check that out. I'm a big science fiction fan, so. Oh yeah, 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 he's, he's terrific. So, um, and then all kids, all teens who are into sci-fi or fantasy, actually it's not science, science fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, um, have read him, know who he is. Nice. Um, and so he's just, he's just brilliant. So I would love to have him. So those are my, those are my top 10. Thank you. That sounds like a great dinner. That sounds wonderful. I would love to be at that party. That sounds amazing. I would love to be at that party too. <laughs> I, oh my God. I want to thank you for coming and talking with me. And I want to recommend your vlogs to people who've not seen them yet. And if you have seen them, continue to watch them. They're wonderful. They're Zine in Real Life and Zines at Quick Eats, both on YouTube. Uh, look for them and uh, please look and, and like it when you go on there to kind of give a few thumbs up or likes on there when you go on to visit. And thank you, Dean, for having me on. This has been so much fun. And I would give a plug to you too. Like, not just me, you're also a fantastic uh, food writer. And I love the articles that you publish in Medium. So thank you very much.
Thank you for coming today to listen to our conversation with Zine in Real Life, star Zine Me, who also does the podcast or the, the blog um, Zine Eats, all about San Francisco food and culture. Please join us next week when we have writer Catherine Dillon, who will be talking to us about writing for medium. Kowalski's Librarian is produced on Anchor by Spotify. Please listen to all the wonderful podcasts there forward to hearing talking to you next week. This podcast is supported by funds from our sponsors and donations from our listeners. If you wish to donate, simply go to the donation box on the website and click to add money. We appreciate any funds. Thank you.